Welcome to episode three of Pod for Good. Today, our guests are Aliyah Shimmy, Executive Director of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministries, and Reverend Chris Moore, Lead Pastor of Fellowship Congregational Church. Join us as we talk about the amazing work they're doing to help those impacted by sex trafficking. We also talk about the intersection of local and national policy around asylum seekers, and we get into a more uplifting topic of interfaith work. We also discover that Aaliyah loves my favorite Star Wars character, Ahsoka Tano, and Chris reminds us all that sometimes strength comes from the smallest creatures. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Pod for Good. Uh, I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse. And I am your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris. And we are incredibly excited to have two of the most wonderful human beings I know on the podcast today. We Aaliyah also Shimmy. have two guests. We also have two guests. Oh, I see. <laughs> nice. Aaliyah Shimmy and Reverend Chris Moore. Um, I'll, I'll let them say how amazing they are, but I'm very excited to have them here. And um, so, Aaliyah, why don't you tell us uh, what you do? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having us here. And what do I do? Besides uh, being Chris Moore's sidekick and your sidekick uh, within the community, we whatever there is that we can do, we try to help our community out, whether that's helping with the homeless, whether that's helping with education, trying to build bridges. That's what we do. Your technical title would be Executive Director of the Tulsa Metropolitan yeah, Ministries, correct? What, I'm going to introduce yes, her. Yeah, you do that, Chris. Yeah. So this is, Aaliyah uh, is the Executive Director of Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, which is, you know, an 80 plus year old institution here in Tulsa, which has steadily grown into now being an interfaith organization. And so Aaliyah has been a very big part of uh, helping TMM sort of rise up again. It had kind of leveled out a little bit. And so um, not only doing that, but uh, having a hand in a thousand other things throughout the city of Tulsa, uh, usually under that umbrella of TMM and several big projects, which I think we'll talk about later. Do you want to introduce Chris since he introduced you? Of course. So if you think I do a lot of things, Mr. Moore over here, Reverend Moore, does a thousand and one more things than I do. So along with being the amazing worship leader at Fellowship Congregational, UCC, the only UCC east of I-44 here. I-35. I-35, excuse me. He you can't go east of I-44. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. East can, of I-35. Sort of. <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> you yes, can't go actually, east. Yeah. Actually, yes. And he sits on literally a bazillion boards. And wherever there is something happening in Tulsa, you will find Chris Moore. So. And I'm not sure that him. sitting on a board really constitutes actually doing something in the world. but I would agree. Uh, I would say what the listeners did not see is Chris Moore and I roll our eyes when Aaliyah called herself our sidekick, right. where mostly we just follow where Aaliyah's going. Right. No, 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 no. We do it together. So there are, I mean, there are a multitude of different interfaith projects that either I've worked with you on or I've seen both of you work on. But I feel like at the moment that there's sort of two focuses, which is issues at the U.S.-Mexico border and the sex trafficking path from that border through Oklahoma. I want to hear from you because I've, I've described it to people, but I never do a good enough job is what is the point of the Francine house? So the point of the Francine house is to help sexual trafficked victims, juveniles to have a place 
for us to be able to help them here in Tulsa. Unfortunately, the only DHS certified facility in the entire state of Oklahoma is in Idabel, and it only has eight beds, uh, if you could imagine that. And so we have hundreds of children being sex trafficked daily here in Tulsa, not just in Tulsa, but in Oklahoma. And for us to have a place for these girls to be helped to receive treatment, that's the point of the Francine House. Are these these juveniles ones who've like escaped from it or who are their their trafficking syndicate has been caught and they are they are now in custody? Is that how they get like how do they get to the Francine House? So some of them might come into the Family Safety Center um, because of the violence that that they were that was perpetrated upon them. Um, some of them may have been arrested with minor crimes or felonies, depending on what's going on. They may have gone through the juvenile system or they may um, self-report just depending on you know what the situation is. So it's, yep. it varies. Unfortunately, it's rarely that it is the shutting down of a you know a, a group or an operation. Sure. It's it's usually individuals who are managing to leave that or getting caught up themselves in the system, mm-hmm. and then no place really systemically for them to go. And why why is Tulsa a hub for sex trafficking? Well, I mean, with with our I-44 and 35, the way that it is, unfortunately, it's, it's just a corridor. And so um, there's multiple places here in the city that you can go to at any given time throughout the day and in the evening, and you can see it happening. And it's very unfortunate, you know, the, the misunderstanding that people have is or the misconception that they have is that oh it only happens in lower socioeconomic backgrounds that it only happens to certain racial groups and that couldn't be further from the truth with social media with everything else that's going on we have people in the south side of Tulsa who come from wealthy backgrounds um, who are still you know pulled into this horrible horrible trade I've read that there are uh, really high rates of recidivism for people who try to get out of the mm-hmm. life so what do you do to try to help them you know not fall back into the sex trade. And that's where Francine House would come in, right? And so they would come in, and Francine House is just phase one of the project, which will be the crisis stabilization unit, to be able to stabilize them, to be able to help them with their initial needs and figure out where they need to go for treatment. And then phase two of our project will be a long-term treatment um, facility for these girls, uh, kind of like a retreat where they would go anywhere from eight to 18 months, go through levels, and we could help them with their education. We could help them with getting you know, different degrees or trade degrees. We can help them with therapy. We could help them you know, just connecting, um, getting through that trauma, and trying to get them back into community where they are successful. So that's, that's would be the pro- that would be the plan. So one of the issues you have is there's not a really good place. You know, there's a lot of recidivism because there's nothing to go to. And when you talk about the the intersection of of issues, you have uh, drug and alcohol abuse, substance abuse, you have domestic violence, you have all other kinds of criminal activity on top of the human trafficking portion of that thing. So it's a really complex issue. You often have mental illness involved as well. You have lots of PTSD. You have people really high ACE factors. All of, you know, just makes it a really complicated issue to contend with. And what we're doing right now, basically, if you don't get one of those eight beds in Idabel, you're most likely going to be in juvenile detention or in prison or in the jail. Yeah. You know, and that's not a good place for anybody to recover from any of those of those factors. And it's a way for us, you know, to talk about how all of those 
things are interrelated. So when we talk about the Francine House or we talk about a plan for human trafficking victims, it's also a chance to say, and our criminal justice system in general has lots of issues and one could argue creates as many problems as it potentially solves. Absolutely. I mean, these, these children are typically polyvictimized, right? They come from a cycle of violence and Chris mentioned their high ACE, ACE scores. And so there's multiple things that we have to talk about before we even begin to help these juveniles. Can you define ACE scores for me? <laughs> so adverse childhood. Yeah. Adverse, adverse childhood. What's the E experiences. That's right. I yeah. I wanted to make that indicators. Yeah. And that would be an eye. An eye. Yeah. <laughs> Even I know that. I have a master's we, degree. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. It's right there on the wall. It's been real helpful. Um, <laughs> well, you knew the eye. I did. So it's pretty good. I know um, the alphabet. Uh, uh, a scores are, uh, they're actually been around for a while, but they're really kind of making a resurgence right now. And in particular, school systems are looking at them and lots of other public agencies are kind of lifting those up because they are such a clear indicator of issues. So if you have a kid who has a high ACE score and that ACE score is determined by their childhood experiences. So did they grow up in a house with chronic poverty? Did they grow up chronically homeless or did they grow up um, with food insecurity? Did they grow up with violence in the house? Did they grow up with drug abuse in the house? Did they grow up with mental illness? You know, all of those factors that can really add to that person's score. And the higher your score is, the more likely you're ha- to have, you are to have issues. And, and, and the more sort of, not necessarily, because people can have really high scores and, and manage to function fairly well, but that's usually an aberration. You know, so it just gives people who are planning things, you know, a chance if they know those A scores that are coming in, like for TPS, for instance, what they have to do around that in terms of support systems. I think it's the sort of the understanding that it's not just one thing that leads someone to, you know, have this problem or to fall into this trap. It's a a series of events throughout their life Mm -hmm. they constantly run into. Since we're talking about. A scores and trauma and whatnot. That seems like a, not a good segue, but a segue with an A uh, to talking about, Chris, your, your work with the New, New Sanctuary Network, constantly drawing attention to the fact that issues with um, asylum seekers and immigrants at the border in Texas actually has a very local relevant presence here in town. You want to talk a little more about that? It's been a very changing atmosphere and and certainly uh, the the lack of bipartisan cooperative attempts to address this at a federal level which you know ultimately is a federal issue have complicated the the local issue considerably and then when you add to that an administration that really shifts the way that ICE is enforcing things um policy changes um tactic changes in particular that are much more aggressive, really egregious violations of human rights. And nowhere do we have a lot of space to have a a reasoned, clear argument uh, or debate about uh, what borders really mean and what we do with those, because we have really different application of that depending on who the person is. And it's fairly challenging to not see a racial component to that. I think it's pretty widely accepted that that is clearly going on. So for us here in Tulsa, we're trying to live in this tension of a city that claims 
It wants to have, you know, this really good connection with an immigrant community and wants to support folks. And it's really important for people to understand that, like, the terminology that, that's, at, that's at work. Because we use these terms back and forth, immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker, and they're all, legally speaking, a really different class of folk. Immigrant is considered somebody who has legally, quote-unquote, legally come here through a really complicated system with lots of checks and balances to it and one that uh, favors particular places over others and particular people over others. And then you have migrants who may be coming here legally or illegally. You have asylum seekers, which is the largest majority of folks that we're getting at the at the border who are people who are who are actually refugees they are fleeing crisis and they are coming here seeking asylum which is legal it's legal to do in fact it's one of the components of the Geneva Convention it's recognized as a human right throughout the world and yet we're kind of from a policy procedure grouping those folks in and rhetorically grouping those folks in with other other groups Lots of dehumanization of folks, lots of unnecessary and inaccurate information out there about who is actually coming to the border and and what those processes are. Uh, So you have a city who's trying to kind of wrestle with that and and a county that is one of 87 in the nation that has a contract with ICE. We detain people here. So we have people currently a few couple miles from here downtown downtown. Tulsa, we have people sitting in that jail who are asylum seekers. So they're in the jail because they won't let them go. They don't have any charges against them. It's not illegal for them to seek asylum, but they have to sit in there and wait for their court date because they won't release them on a bond. Uh, that's a change in policy. And the, the court that they would have to go to is in Dallas, correct? Correct. Yeah, likely. I mean, there's complications to that, too, but... Do you have any expectations on whether that contract will be renewed again? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk between the city and the county with regards to that. And the- Actually, I, I mean, I think there's been very little talk between the city and the county. Most of, the, most of our advocacy work uh, puts us in a place where the city says, oh, I, that's county business. I don't mm-hmm. want to deal with that and, and won't talk about it. So there's, there's ways in which the city and county act like they're the same thing until it's not very convenient to do that. Mm-hmm. And then they... Then they're separate entities, and law enforcement's a big, big place where that happens. I don't have any yeah. optimism at all that that would not be renewed. Now, it just recently got renewed by the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to be renewed by the county commissioners, but because it was a renewal of an already existing contract that the county commissioners signed, the one of the assistant DAs ruled that the sheriff could just re-up it. So that's what happened. So it's, we got another year. Uh, so that'll come up again in June of next year. Uh, I don't have any reason to suspect that the vote would be any different. Mm-hmm. If, if Even if it's the county commissioners, I don't know whether the sheriff will try to sign it again. At this point, he's been very vocal, very public in his support of, of 287G. Which I was, was going to say, like, let, let, let's yeah. mention what the right. law is, because some people might have right. seen this on, on Facebook or wherever it's uh, – the, the name of the, I guess, is that the name of the, the bill? Is 287G or is it? No, the- none of these are bills. So 287G is a, is a contract agreement that a county enters into with 
ice. At this point, 287G means that it, there's no money exchanging hands between the federal government and the county. In fact, it costs the county money to do this. But what it allows the county to do is to deputize their law enforcement officers as ICE agents. So they are then able to go and and act directly as an ICE agent. That's what 287G does. Now, we also have what's called an Intergovernmental Service Agreement, an IGSA. And that agreement allows us to detain prisoners, many of whom are not even from Tulsa, They're not picked up here in Tulsa. They're brought up from other places, and we just house them. That is a money-exchanging contract. Now, we have some debate with the county as to whether that's actually making us money or not. Um, The county claims it is. We would uh, assert that it is not making us money. In fact, it's costing taxpayers money uh, to do this. And uh, then beyond that, we frankly have the moral argument, which – I don't know how much <laughs> that really. <laughs> how much time do you have for that one? The moral argument. I don't know how far that really goes with folks, but the you know the moral argument is if you are, uh, and this kind of crosses party lines. So if you're generally in favor of what you of the kind of rhetoric you hear coming out of the White House or the policies that are in play, if you don't like that, or even if that's something that you're saying, well, I tolerate that because I like the president's economic policies or anything like that. It's okay, but I wish he would do it different. We are full party to all of that. We are participating more fully than most counties across the nation. So we are absolutely in bed with the White House and on that policy and their enforcement of that. I mean, it's 100%. We couldn't be any more invested in that. So the reason it's important to know 287G and IGSA is that one of the suspicions is that in June of next year, they those two things will actually be combined. So then 287G will mean that you can also detain because they, they see a weakness. I think ICE sees a weakness in just a 287G contract that you have to train your people. You have to pay them to go to the additional training. You have to do some other stuff that costs you money so you could at least have this component that would make you money because they pay you for the time that the prisoners are in the in your beds. So you said you were not optimistic that this will change. What would need to happen between now and the next time it's voted for, for at least either the city uh, commissioners or the sheriff to think twice about doing this again? Like, what would... Tulsa G public. It's a terrible name for a, r- a random Tulsa person, but what would the general public need to do? How angry and loud would they have to get to stop this from happening again? I don't know how angry they would have to get. I think they would have to get loud. I mean, I think that it would be important for people to hear uh, that they're not in favor of us participating in this. And that would be enough of a message if they heard it from enough people, as opposed to it just being, you know, the, you know, the lefty pinko commie, uh, activists who are out there are easily dismissible, you know, so we, we've kind of changed as a strategy, you know, um, the groups that I work with and there are multiple groups working on it. We're trying to build a little more power and we're really focused at this point on, on the election cycle, uh, rather than, uh, trying to, to end the contract from being renewed because we don't have a lot of faith that we'll be able to deal with that. I feel like I want to play the sad trombone, but I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move, unless you have another question. Well, I'm just wondering, if we can't stop that from getting renewed, you know, how can we help in other ways to, you know, make people 
feel welcome, you know, help when maybe they're, they are able to, mm-hmm. to get out, things like that. What other things can we do? Well, the New Sanctuary Network does a lot of, like, direct help. In fact, frankly, that's the vast majority of what gets done by – uh, by the project director who is out there on the streets, like really helping families and doing some direct one-on-one care. And the need is very high. You know, if you're a person who speaks Spanish, that's super helpful uh, to do some translation. And there's always work to be done as far as that's concerned. If you are a clergy person, and particularly if you are a clergy person who speaks Spanish, then having access to the prisoners, which you, you can have now having access to the detainees at the jail is, is a is a possibility and it, it's a very helpful thing. If you are somebody who can just collect clothes or even give you know a little money, that's all Food very helpful. To like McDonald's or okay. anything like that, you know. So uh, going to the new Sanctuary Network website um, or look or following New Sanctuary Network, particularly on Facebook. Uh, is where a lot of the activity happens and a lot of the postings that occur. There's a a weekly vigil at the jail at noon on Fridays. Mm-hmm. It's about 15 minutes long, and they stay pretty disciplined about that length of time. And it's a vigil right out in front of David L. Moss. Uh, you can go on your lunch hour, take your 15 minutes. You can make some connections with people who are there. Um, and that's been going on now for... No, almost two and a half years. Yeah, long time. By Rabbi Fitzerman. Two years, anyway. Yeah. Would my reverend card from the Universal Life Church that I got online (laughs) count as allowing me to go see detainees? It will not. Uh, I got the card and the (laughs) diploma and everything. All right, let's move to a, let's say, happier topic. That's 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 the worst word. But Tulsa, at least, from my experience living in a multitude of different cities, has a strong history in sort of interfaith community building where at least as a Jewish person, we were from a very early age, it was sort of trained into us that we're always going to be a very, very small minority. And the best thing we can do is to one, make sure we are known by as many people as possible. And two, helping out the other minority groups in town, which when I was young, I was like, I couldn't understand that there were like minority Christian groups until like I met you. Uh, <laughs> And my other, like, uh, my Catholic and Lutheran friends, I'm like, oh, I get it now. Because, you know, when you're super young, it just seems like it's one huge block. Right. And, and you I know. think uh, Catholic is probably only minority in, in Broken Arrow just because the, yeah. the, the yeah. high percentage of, yes. of Baptists yes. and non-denominations. There are a lot of churches in Broken Arrow. And I was, just, I was like, why, why do they need so many churches? Anyway, OCCJ has their program where they take you to different religious institutions. That was mm-hmm. the first time I went to a mosque. That was the first time I went to Boston Avenue. United Methodist Church, and in my past life, we we did interfaith programming together. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that every time we do a sort of interfaith programming, it still seems like it, it's the same group of people, right? It's There are people who want to learn about other faiths and talk to people about other faiths, and then there's a large majority of the population in town who either doesn't have time for it or doesn't actually want it. And so I wanted to, I wanted to talk about how we don't preach to the choir when we come to sort of interfaith work and how, if there is a way to cut through that to get more people involved so that the people we want to be involved in interfaith work are the ones actually being involved in interfaith work. Sure. Well, in the past couple of years, I would say um, because of the election and with the new administration that we've had in place, a lot more people have been reaching out 
than before. In the past, we've never had Church of Christ members active with Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry with interfaith work. And within the past few years, we've had more and more Church of Christ members, you know, and you would consider them to be very conservative, right? When when you look on the spectrum of Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, when they reach out um, and, you know, it started out s- small baby steps, right? And that's how it always starts out. And then and then you you grow from there to now where we're able to communicate with at least three or four churches of Christ here in town. And so I think, again, it's it's us reaching out to them and them reaching out to us and, and building those bridges a uh, little, little bit at a time. And then growing the programming from there to where they feel comfortable. I know there's still some people within some of these congregations where the leadership and some of the families might be comfortable, but some of the other, you know, people who attend are like, oh, I don't know about those Muslims or I don't know about those Jews, you know. And so just meeting them one on one, once you're able to put a face to your fear, um, it's a lot easier, right? Then you're no longer the boogeyman, you know. So it's always trying to put that fear to your other, that face to your other, um, then it becomes easier. How would you, as a reverend in a small Christian denomination, sort of view people's outside view of what Oklahoma and Tulsa are like, right? Because when, when I would travel and I would tell people where I'm from, one, the first question was, there are Jews there. Mm-hmm. There, there are Jews there, I should say, that's a question. Right. Yeah. And two, like, isn't that, yeah, there are Jews there? Right. <laughs> and they'd, they'd either mention, or oh, Roberts University, the Praying right. Hands, or just yeah. like the Buckle, the Bible Belt. And I was always like, yeah. There are a lot of Christians about, but there are a lot of Christians everywhere. So how do you, as a reverend in a church, use sort of the fact that there, there's a church almost on, on every street corner here? How do you sort of compete in the marketplace of Christian ideas here? Uh, yeah, that's a real challenge. I mean, it's a... <clears throat> So again, uh, you've kind of touched on it several times that there's this sort of sense of you know Christianity with a big capital C. Most Christians don't even know their their own faith much less other faiths like they don't they don't even know the depth of their own tradition they know what they were raised in uh, but they don't know anything else and that kind of educational process doesn't occur really anywhere uh, so even going out to see how other churches uh, operate like you know how they worship would be the the quickest door to go in and we don't do that anywhere, really, to speak of. So, you know, from, from my point of view, well, just this weekend we had the annual meeting for my conference, which is Kansas and Oklahoma, all the churches, and it was held here in Tulsa. And we had a, a guy come from the United Church Funds, which does all the, you know, the investing and all that stuff for churches. And uh, he came from New York City, and he's from St. Louis, and you know, he was, he said multiple times how glad he was to see that in Tulsa there was a, you know, open and affirming Christian community worshiping and all that kind of stuff. That So he was showing his cards. Like, I didn't expect <laughs> there are those things in Tulsa, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, Which we get a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, again, to acknowledge that we have, an institution in TMM that has been here for a long, long time, first trying to do you know ecumenical work when it was a super big deal to have Protestants and Catholics talking to each other. Oh my God. We were the first yeah. organization in the nation right. to be able to do that ecumenical work. And then to invite other faiths in and eventually to get to a place where you have a Muslim woman leading the organization. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. It's so great. It makes me so happy. All right. 
So I, I have a lot of uh, friends who are LGBTQIA who have had bad experiences with institutions of no faith kidding. of all kinds. Absolutely. What kind of work do you do to kind of try to bridge those gaps and sort of heal that those bad feelings that people have towards faith because of that? You, you never can rest on your laurels in thinking that – so doing the kind of – just base ground work of like, let's go out and redefine the, what are called the clobber passages. So let's pull these things that have been used as weapons against LGBTQIA folks. Let's unpack those a little bit and give a different perspective. I often find myself going, oh, well, everybody's already heard all that. No, they mm-hmm. haven't. No. And the vast majority of people, in fact, it's a real minority of folk. I do kind of roll in a bubble and I've got to recognize that I roll in a bubble and most of the people I'm encountering, I'm working daily with folks from the equality center and from, you know, the, the five, six, seven other open and affirming churches around. And I can forget that right down the street, right around the corner, virtually all the other churches are, that's not what you're going to get. And I think you're seeing the impact of that right now in the United Methodist Church that is really just getting ready to tear itself apart, not unlike other denominations have, and trying to give people an opportunity to note, you know, you first have to make the argument for, frankly, you have to make the argument for God these days, and then you have to make the argument for church to people who have no reason reasonably have no reason to trust in that or to believe in that or to even want that. And so it's a really, really challenging thing. I have a, I have a couple, these men are in their 60s. They've started attending the church. They spent the last 25 years at a church where they couldn't sit together. They've been together for 42 years. They couldn't sit together in church. They were barely acknowledged most of the time. Uh, Once a year when the pastor would go visit everybody in their house, she would sign up on a list and they'd sign up every year and the pastor never visited. And they came to our church and walked in and saw gay couples sitting together and like this was normal. And I forget how many folks still live a closeted existence. And it's heartbreaking to me to see that and to know that in 2019 that people are not finding that in their life when they should be able to. I want to take it a step further as well, because when you look at me physically, you see that I'm a covered Muslim woman. So that comes with a whole slew of baggage because immediately the majority of the people from the LGBTQ community look at me and they see me as an adversary because they think with the rhetoric that, oh, Islam condemns them and this and that and the other, and that couldn't be further from the truth. At Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, our motto is we don't have to believe alike to love alike. And so we want to take it back to that most basic human principle of loving and respecting everybody, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless, right? Um, At the end of the day, as a Muslim, what everybody does is each individual is judged on their own. Right. And so as a human being, it is my job to love and respect everybody, period. It doesn't say just these everybody's uh, period. Right. 
And so, you know, when I first started working with the Equality Center, I'm not going to lie, there was a lot of challenges. There was a lot of people who were not comfortable seeing me there. And so little by little, we were we were able to make that difference. So it's, in fact, so much so that Toby Jenkins, executive director, was receiving calls from, from different equality centers from across the nation going, how in the world did you get the Muslims to work with you all? <laughs> or, what is going on in Tulsa, Oklahoma? You know, and so... It is heartbreaking when we hear these stories like what Chris is mentioning to where you don't feel comfortable in your in your house of worship. Why would you go to a house of worship you don't feel comfortable in? And it is sad that we only have a handful of houses of worship here where they can truly be themselves and be with their family members just to worship, to be able to bring that to light and, and to see. I, I mean, I also acknowledge some of the struggles that others are having with these other houses of worship. And and we have several members from other communities who've reached out and said, you know, help me understand. So I think that's a lot of the critical work that we do is trying to help other people understand as well. I think it's a work that we're going to continue to do. Do you get pushback from your faith communities for the work that you do? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if if you don't have people who are pushing back, then you're not doing something right, right? <laughs> So, of course we do. Everybody thinks they know it all. You just say, okay, you know, you do what you want to do. We're going to do what we're going to do and keep keep moving with it. And, and again, the most basic principle, I put it back within my faith tradition. I say, you know what? It's between God and the follower or God and that human being. It's who are you? You know, the biggest sin in my faith is to pass judgment upon somebody. So who are you to judge? Right. And so if you're not going to do something productive, get out of my way. And let us continue to do the work, right? You just have to put your big girl britches on and, and, and keep moving and, and do the work. It, it might mean that you're not going to be the most popular person, but you know what? That's okay. Because at the end of the day, you know you're doing something that's right and, and helping others. So, TMM represents an organization that is not of one mind, particularly on the issue of inclusion. And so we struggle with that. And there are a lot of things that we have to end up doing, like Alia and I have to end up doing on our own, you know, not necessarily under the umbrella of TMM, so that we can help keep that dialogue going and help keep that relationship going because it's really critical. You don't get to the kinds of social change that you need to get to without maintaining that relationship, without working on that. And that is slow, slow work. And uh, unlike the social media world where we, we want things to occur very, very quickly, mm-hmm. it just takes a long, long time. And showing people that they don't have to be afraid of what they think they're afraid of, and that mm-hmm. operates on lots of different levels with lots Absolutely. of different issues, but also that you know if we can help people move from a, from a place of uh, aversion or resistance to a place of tolerance, it's not where I want them to stay because nobody wants to be tolerated. But it's better than, you know, it's a step in the right direction. And you Mm -hmm. don't get to acceptance if you don't get to tolerance first. So it it is a it's a personal challenge all the time because I really got to stop and take a deep breath, explain things again, you know, talk about why I'm in the place that I am as far as my faith is concerned. Sometimes unpack those scriptural verses, sometimes talk about how we read the Bible and talk about what our approach, what our religious approach actually really means. In some cases, it's that's where it's good to have a religious education so you can actually evoke some people's tradition that they sometimes don't even know themselves, right? Like, here's where you come from, and so... Uh, 
when you say that. It's <laughs> right. so funny. I can't tell you on how many occasions when people come at me because I'm a Muslim and they want to come at me and they want to use Jesus, you know, and they think that Jesus is some white guy who was just born. <laughs> I'm like, right. do you know where Jesus came from? <laughs> he wasn't a white guy. I promise you, right. you know. Wait. Jesus Wait, wasn't what? white. Yeah. Wait, what? What? Which, <laughs> which brings up an interesting. Uh, you generate, Chris. You generate a lot of controversy last year with your nativity scene. Yeah. So, <laughs> I feel like we have to talk to oh, yeah. a little bit at least. I loved it. Yes, I, I did as well. That so, was right after our trip to Tornillo. Yeah. Yes. Oof. Wow. Oh, that was a fun trip. Ooh. <laughs> but really, what, what were you hoping to to get out of that? Well, I'll say first and foremost, that was not my idea. You know, that <laughs> comes from. I mean, I don't say that to dismiss. I like doing it, but it was. You know, like all good preachers, I steal most of my stuff. And, uh, so <laughs> it was an idea stealing. that other churches yeah. had borrowing, borrowing, borrow. Right. Well, now we're just into semantics at this point. But, <laughs> semantics uh, with an S. Right. Yeah. There were other churches who had done this. And while the idea wasn't new to me, I did realize the provocative nature of doing that in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. That was uh, absolutely 100% agreed to by the church council. 100% behind it. Uh, I think the response from the church was very good. We got a lot of coverage. You know, that is what it is. I did not even solicit that. Uh, it was just a matter of putting that up. And as people drove by and could see it, I mean, within five hours of putting that up, we had phone calls and people kind of showing up and, and local first. And then it, then it really expanded um, from that. Overall, you know, I think it had, it made some, some waves, but it's also that shock factor thing that is what it is and nice for a moment. And at some point you have to get back to the, to the real work uh, about stuff. And my, my congregation has kind of wanted to do some other things, you know, like other kinds of provocative things. And we've, I've kind of said, well, you know, let's, let's use that sparingly. Mm-hmm. Because what I really want us to do is to be involved in the kind of work that it that it actually takes to change stuff. And you really don't get that by slapping people across the face for the most part. Yeah. I know to, I guess, hit the trifecta of controversial issues, uh, Alia, you've done a lot of work with community policing and worked with TPD sure. on that. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, sure. and the work you've done? Sure. So um, I was on the Community Policing Commission um, helped with um, some of those recommendations that came out from the 21st Century um, Commission on Recommendation on Policing. I'm one of the privileged individuals in Tulsa who gets to go into TPD and train each of the academies that come through, some other people who come in and train, like Toby Jenkins and others in the community. Just to have that connection with law enforcement and to be able to, even if it's just a little bit of understanding of a community that they don't understand um, that will help them in the long run as they police our community because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are supposed to be there to keep us safe. If they have misconceptions or if they approach something from a different perspective and they don't understand it, it's our job to help them understand that. And so being able to sit on MPAC and as community members, giving some of our advice and letting the chief here and, and deputy chiefs hear what's going on and working with them um, to try and solve some of the issues um, I know we've had some, of course, some issues in Tulsa, you know, with the Terrence Crutcher shooting, with the Betty Shelby trial and things like that, where um, I think the faith community really played a major role in coming out and trying to keep the peace in the city. You know, we still have a lot of work to do, um, but at the end of the day, we're only able to do that if we do it together. And so just 
trying to keep those conversations going, um, trying to make sure that everybody's held accountable, um, trying to make sure where we're able to say, yeah, you guys are doing a good job, but here's where it's lacking and here's where we need to do more work and calling it like it is. Right. And so to be able to be that mediator or, or to be able to be that community member that's able to bring things together, sometimes the community doesn't know a lot of right what's going on. And, and so as, as members, we're able to say, no, look, this is what they're doing. This is the goal or this is the plan and be able to bring down that anxiety. Again, as active community members, I believe it's a role for all of us to be able to take part in and, and help. You invited me to the dinner. You have, I guess, uh, maybe, I don't know how many years you've been doing this, but right before the graduating class of the Tulsa Police Department sort of graduate, they come to a, a house of worship. In this case, it was Temple Israel because the church it was supposed to be at burned down in a fire. Sure. These about to graduate police officers get to meet with religious leaders and community leaders in town. And so that the first time, yeah. yeah, so the first time they meet, it's not an emergency. Absolutely. Absolutely. They have, they have contact points beforehand. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're meeting a police officer for the first time on the street and there's, there's some sort of crisis going on, uh, everybody's adrenaline is running and, you know, you might act completely different. And so to be able to build those bridges ahead of time before there's a crisis, God forbid, and to be able to know what you're supposed to do prior to me working with, community policing, you know, I had several experiences looking like I do and not knowing what recourse I have or who I need to deal with or who I need to talk to. But very quickly, you know, I, I was able to learn what the, you know, what the procedures are and um, going through the community, the Citizens Police Academy, you know, before I went through the Citizens Police Academy, I thought SWAT team or bomb squad would definitely be the most dangerous thing, you know, any of our officers have to do. But after I went through it myself, I learned that a simple traffic stop is literally the most dangerous thing. A police officer has to do. And so for me to understand why that's so important, it's so dangerous, and to be able to explain that to others and why they do the things. Like I learned about 287G about four years ago, five years ago, when I went through the Citizens Police Academy, you know, and to be able to start bringing that awareness, right? And so I would, I would you know, recommend all of our community members to have a ride along, you know, reach out to your law enforcement, learn who those individuals are, especially figure out where, you know, where your department is, right? Whether you're Riverside, where, you know, wherever your area is, get to know those people who police your area. So that way, you know, if God forbid there is an issue, you're able to reach out to somebody. It's a very challenging argument to make, frankly. And I think it's probably something we're not very good as a culture, holding the tension between things. Uh, so, so to suggest to folks that it's possible to be pro-cop and pro-accountability, you actually can support police officers and law enforcement uh, officers and their job and want them to be safe and go home every night and want all of those things and want a just system mm-hmm. and want people to behave justly and expect them to behave justly. That's a that's a challenging argument to get out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that same tension is true in lots of other issues, you know, that it's sure. that it's possible to. Uh, to hold what seem what 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 often get portrayed as opposing viewpoints that that really are not. Sure, I mean the first dinner that we ever had was at Morningstar Baptist Church. You know, to bring out a group of graduating cadets with a lot of the leadership to Morningstar Baptist Church. You know, mine in Peoria, and that was a pretty interesting dinner. Our goal is to bring them to some of these um, difficult. Places where they might not necessarily have 
built those bridges and to try and mediate between to try and build those bridges. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. I know that you're both incredibly busy. I know that Aaliyah will um, answer a text at midnight if I send it to her, so I've stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah, I will not answer a text at midnight. Do not send me a text. I will answer you even if it's two in the morning. It's okay, also, for our listeners, you might have noticed that everyone here has now, uh, pronounced your name differently, but you're okay with that. I am perfectly fine okay. with that. I answer to hey you. It's all good. <laughs> the, the, the thing we like to do is have our guests sort of pick out something in this nerd cave that... Uh, sort of calls to them like the thing like that. Yes. That's the kind of nerd I am. We well, have to take it home or one thing before we do that, because oh, yes. to do that, you'll have to get up and we'll make you pose for a picture as well. Is that we want to give you a chance to kind of, if you've got something coming up that you'd like to plug is that, you know, I know you mentioned the uh, vigils that are every Friday. Mm-hmm. If there's anything else coming up, if you got any events, I know the Francine house is get coming Closer. Yeah, we're working. We're working on Francine House. So currently, we're working on fun, fundraising for Francine House, and so hopefully, within the next year, year and a half or so, we'll have that, you know, up and running. So, um, and how can people much, help? Um, how they can, can people reach donate? out to our website? They can reach out to any of the faith leaders that are working on that, and um, reach out to us at the office, Facebook. So they can reach out to us any which way. T U M M dot org. Okay. That was good because I was going to say tmm.org, and that's yeah. apparently wrong. So yes. That's a different place. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. We weren't quick enough when yes. we got this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who got tmm.org? Anyway. I don't know. I'd have to check Let me that find out. That was a lot before my time, so. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to pitch? <laughs> uh, no. All right. There are, there are the vigils every Friday. I, I went to the large one that was sort of the, the collective everyone show up at a place. Um, but I've not been one of the smaller ones, but I hear they're, they're, sure. they're very nice. They're very quick. And it's interesting. It's, it's, I feel like as a citizen, it's good to know where these things are happening. So seeing it at David Elmas is, I feel like very important. Well, I mean, you went to the one in Tornillo, you know? Yes, I did. Yes, you I did. Were there. <laughs> so, so seeing two Christian ministers, two Jews and a Muslim roll up to Tornillo to the border, that was pretty interesting. I, I still have not recovered from that trip. That was, <laughs> oof. Yeah. And the, and the funniest part of that, when we went to the Hoppy Monk. Yes, the Hoppy Monk. Still got that shirt. <laughs> yes. Yes. We were the walking joke. We were. We were. <laughs> the Christians and Jews and the Muslims walking into bar. That's right. <laughs> the only three of us drink. That was give the longer yes. name for the podcast <laughs> I was eventually going to launch. Yes. <laughs> per, my my uh, permanent designated driver. That's here. right. Yeah. That's right. It's true. Will forever be the DD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So now after interrupting your long spiel yes. about... So, yes, look around at all the interesting pop culture. See if anything speaks to you. Yes. You either love or that you want to ask questions. Yes, you're like, what confusing. is that? We have so many things. Warrior speaks to me. The visual medium. <laughs> oh, Ahsoka. Oh, oh. You are speaking to, to Jesse I have, directly. I have, this. I have three different shrines to this character in this house. Yes, so it... So, for our listeners, uh, she picked up Ahsoka Tano action figure, who was a character invented for the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoons. Mm-hmm. She was the Padawan of Anakin Skywalker. And of all Star Wars characters I've ever seen or read about, she actually has the fullest emotional arc of sort of coming into her own, learning about the fact that the universe is gray and not black and white like the Jedi want it to be, and uh, also being a badass. So. Mm-hmm. That's exactly why she drew my attention. <laughs> she just looks like a badass. Yes. Yep. There's also a Funko Pop of her over there. I have a 
there's an artist we like who draws really cool Star Wars things. I have I have many Ahsoka things. <laughs> She's great. She's my She's favorite. Awesome. Yes. She's so awesome. good choice. Yes, good choice. Good choice. All right, Chris. I'm not going very far away, so I'm just going right next to the Kung Fu Panda. Mm-hmm. Poe is uh, Master Shivu, right? Yes. Shif- I, I believe Shifu. Shifu. Yeah. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Shifu. Shifu. Yes. <laughs> Who's a red panda. Right. Yes. One of the most adorable animals on earth. Right. Yes, these were actually like, I think like Burger King lunch toys. <laughs> um, but I, I love I love those films. Voiced uh, by Dustin Hoffman. Yes, yes. Who is, ironically, a kung fu master. Really? Yeah. Did you know that? I did not know, know that. that. He's not. I don't know. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Lied to me. Right. You know, but, but he master does it with Shifu. such confidence. Yeah, you did. Right. Yeah. It's good. This is what I like about the movies, and there's like 17 Kung Fu Panda movies. Master Shifu is – all of the power in those movies is in unexpected places, right? It The the places that look like the big old tough, you know, tigers and lions Mm -hmm. and stuff, that's not where the real power is. It's the small things. It's it's another hobbit sort of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're about to know one, Master Shifu. Anyway, a little crossover <laughs> joke there, which is good. In our, in our second episode, Kara picked uh, Mantis over there from the TV, who also from Kung Fu Panda. So yeah. So and another thing, like um, yeah. praying Mantis yeah. is one of the yes. Kung Fu, right? Yeah. He's so powerful. You literally don't see him doing his things. Well, excellent. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Yes, well, thank this you. was amazing. Thank you and for having us. Yeah. I will put in the episode notes links to all the websites, all the Facebook things. Do it. Hit it. Oh, no, it was that one. (laughs) Thank you both. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to episode three of Pod for Good. Chris and I want to thank Aaliyah and Chris for joining us today and helping us better understand all the ways religion plays into the social justice issues of the day and how we can get more involved and how we can have better conversations with those we may disagree with. If you could, please do two things for Chris and I. Subscribe to this podcast, and most importantly, share it on the social networks you still use, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever new one might exist at this point. We want to hear what you think about the podcast. So please send us feedback and questions at pods good. that's P-O-D-S, the number four, G-O-O-D, at gmail.com. And don't forget, we want to keep doing this podcast, so please support us on our Patreon page, which is listed in our show notes. We look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Let's get it done, Telsa. Telsa.